Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us to this place tonight to learn more about what is around us and what is in us. Lord, your word tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows forth your handiwork, and that which is in the created world all, all around us bears witness to your glory. We pray that you would give us a sense of that tonight as we look into yet another part of an argument for your existence. Lord, be our teacher tonight. Wow us, awe us with what is in this universe. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there intelligent, is there evidence for intelligent design in this universe? Is there evidence for intelligent design in this universe? Last week we looked into the proverbial telescope and we looked at, the cosmo, at some cosmological evidence for fine-tuning in this universe. You remember we looked at what Polkinghorne referred to as the cosmic uh, control center of the universe, where there are 35 dials that have to be set just right, things like the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the speed of light, the ratio of protons to electrons and so forth. 35 dials of constants in this universe, the chances of any one of them being set just right is infinitesimally small. But to get all 35 of them just right to where they will sustain and support life in this universe is, well, it's infinitesimally small multiplied by infinitesimally small times infinitesimally small 35 times. And we looked at that. So we looked sort of through the telescope, as it were, last week to look at cosmological evidence for the existence of fine-tuning in this universe. And we said that this week we would look at some terrestrial evidence. Um, tonight we're going to look through the microscope, so to speak, for terrestrial evidence of fine-tuning in this universe. Now, let me ask you, do you see evidence at the terrestrial level? You might not have looked through a, a microscope in a long time, or a, a telescope in a long time, but chances are good you look through a microscope or you just looked around you. Do you what do you think are some evidences of design or fine-tuning in this universe? Anyone, just shout it out. A snowflake, okay. Tides, yes, uh, which are dependent upon the gravitational force of the moon. Sneezes. <laughs> what else? Everything, everything. Everything. Well, that's pretty comprehensive. How about the eye? Isn't the eye the most sophisticated camera you've ever seen or have ever learned of? Um, I, I, I wish Miss, the former Miss Bykowski were here, Mrs. Halp. She says, it's fascinating to her that leaves turn upward when they get thirsty. Did you know that? Well, who told it to do that? Well, there are naturalistic atmospheric explanations for that, but it is kind of interesting, isn't it? Other examples, any come to mind? The brain. The brain. The brain. <laughs> for the most part, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, here's this computer, and it's mostly fat and water. You're either a fathead, <laughs> or, uh, or, or you're all washed up. <laughs> okay? You get this computer inside your skull. Hopefully it works well. All right, we can go on and on and on looking at this. Uh, what I want to focus on tonight, though, is when scientists developed the ability to look inside the cell, they discovered 
what they discovered was a vast amount of information, and it was pretty unexpected. Uh, it's a vast amount of specific ordered information, and the discovery was nothing short of revolutionary. Uh, in fact, almost every single cell in your body, um, it's, it's got a set of unique, complex instructions that make you, you. And if you're really interested in this particular subject, there are some resources I have listed there in your outline. Um, the first one is called Signature in a Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Design by Stephen Meyer. He's the guy that you saw in that video clip that I just showed. I don't have that book with me, but I have the other three. Uh, the Creation Hypothesis, Scientific Evidence for an Intelligent Designer by J.P. Moreland. And he gets into uh, this pretty heavily in terms of uh, the, the DNA structure, the double helix, and so forth, which we'll talk about tonight. Intelligent Design, The Bridge Between Science and Theology by William Dembski. The foreword is written by Michael Behe. Is that a familiar name to anybody? Who's Michael Behe? Lehigh University. Wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. Said that cells are irreducibly complex. They could not have evolved to the point at which they are now. Because if you take any one system out of them, they collapse. They don't function. That's a powerful argument. He's since written other books, but that's the one that really put him on the map. And he's right up the street at Lehigh University. And he's a believer. How Blind is the Watchmaker? Nature's Design and the Limits of Naturalistic Science uh, by Neil Broom. And uh, he begins with reference. Anybody know what the reference is to the watchmaker? Um, anybody? You ever hear of Pally's watchmaker? If you, you're walking along the seashore and you find uh, there in the sand a watch, you wouldn't have expected that it just came into being out of nothing. Somebody put it together with intentionality and purpose, and it is functioning the way it was designed to function, if it's still keeping time. And that was uh, Paley's famous watch. And so that's the reference to the title there. Some good books on uh, what we're looking at tonight. Now, there are two sides to this debate, obviously. Um, not everybody believes what, what I'm going to present tonight. But we're going to try to look at the counterarguments to what I'm going to present tonight. Remember, we said that you present an argument. An argument is not true or false. An argument is valid or invalid. The way you determine whether or not an argument is a good one is to evaluate the truth or falsehood of the premises that make the argument. Okay, that was several weeks ago, but just to refresh our memories, an argument is not true or false, it's valid or invalid. So you set up a valid argument, and then you examine the premises or the building blocks of that argument. So that's what we're going to try to do tonight. Now, the two sides of this debate are these. First of all, there is the intelligent design, or the ID side, ID for short, intelligent design. And it basically says this, not to be overly simplistic, but it says things look designed because they are designed. They look designed because they are designed. Um, the other side, of course, is Darwinism or neo-Darwinism, which says that things look designed, but they're not really designed. And most Darwinists will grant you that, yeah, things do look designed, but that's just an illusion. Um, in the video clip of Dawkins uh, that you might have seen a couple weeks ago, he said that, you know, it is intuitive when, when you look at a nicely tended garden and everything is so pretty and ordered and balanced and symmetrical and all that, it's natural and intuitive to think that there's a gardener behind it. 
But, said Dawkins, there is no gardener um, for this universe, to follow his analogy. There are simply undirected causes that got the universe where it is and got the universe doing what it's doing right now. Uh, and those undirected causes for him, as a neo-Darwinist, would be, um, first of all, random mutation and then natural selection. Random mutation, meaning that small organisms can slightly vary from one generation to the next. There's a genetic mutation of some sort. And if that mutation is advantageous for the next generation, it will survive and outlive, quote unquote, the previous generation. And so that mutation will then replicate itself and so forth and so on and get more and more complex as time goes by. Um, and the natural selection weeds out the disadvantaged mutations. So, uh, um, Mutations or random mutations coupled with natural selection gives you higher and higher and higher forms of life. Okay, now that's a little bit simplistic, but that's really the outline of neo-Darwinism. Uh, and that has been the conventional wisdom for the last 150 years since Charles Darwin uh, published his Origin of the Species. Uh, design or the appearance of design in the world is an illusion. Um, okay, so... Uh, the classical Darwinian point of view is that whatever may appear to be design is just that, it's an appearance and it's illusion. Richard Dawkins put it like this, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Biology is the study of complicated, remember Dawkins is our atheistic foil that we're using all the way through this study. Um, the study of co complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now what's the operative word there? What's the operative word? Appearance. The appearance. Um, it's an illusion. Um, they think, atheists think, that there is scientific explanation for the appearance of design that does not involve any actual design. It doesn't require the existence of an intelligent designer. Um, and as I've said, natural selection and genetic mutation are two big ones for them. Francisco Ayala, who's the past president of the Association for the Advancement of Science, said this, the functional design of organisms and their features seem to argue for the existence of a designer. See how all these atheistic or naturalistic uh, scientists, they're acknowledging the appearance of design. They acknowledge it seems to be there. It was Darwin's greatest accomplishment, however, to show that the directive organization of living things can be explained as the result of a natural process, natural selection, without any need to resort to a creator or other external agent. In other words, we don't need God. We have in biology itself the mechanism by which life can come into existence and become more and more complex and become the human race. Okay? Um, but I think it's interesting. That, uh, these quotes, I think, bear it out. All of them will acknowledge there appears to be design. But we're going to explain that design with a naturalistic mechanism rather than a supernatural mechanism. So, I ask the question again, is there any evidence for intelligent design in nature? Well, let's look at the building blocks of life. There are two broad theories, or two broad divisions of evolutionary theory. Um, first is biological evolution. That's what uh, usually is taught in the public school system. 
uh, as to how we got the way we are, how humankind has evolved to the point where we are. And biological evolution seeks to explain how we got from simple pre-existing forms of life to more complex forms of life. And I put pre-existing there in italics for a reason. Okay, evolutionary or biological evolution seeks to explain how we got from simple pre-existing life forms to more complex life forms. And you see there um, Darwin's uh, famous uh, branching tree diagram. You, You might have seen this in biology or the history of science course that you may have taken. And what you have there is a tree. At the bottom is the very first uh, organism, the very first living organism. And as the theory goes, all of life, every living thing that exists today has its origin at the base of the trunk there. A living organism, a cell, has become, through random, through genetic mutation and and natural selection, we have become who we are. And so you'll see the, the plants and the bacteria, all species of animals and, and uh, of course, human beings at the top there in the branches. And it, this is a, a theory of divergent evolution. It's not that one thing became something else and everything. Be, it, it's not just linear, but it, it branches. Okay, so there are several branches to this tree of life. Interestingly, uh, Darwin had his tree of life, which he said replaced God's tree of life or implied it. But the point is this. According to Darwinian theory, if you go back far enough through evolutionary history as they present it, you get to a single common ancestor from which all other life forms evolved over time. A single living cell. Uh, And this is Darwin's tree of life. Now, that is evolutionary theory. That's biological evolutionary theory. You've heard it before. It's taught everywhere. Not only is it taught, it's assumed to be fact. And anyone who questions it, you have, well, you are a meathead. (laughs) You are uh, all washed up in the brain. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, the second type of evolutionary theory is, is chemical evolution. Uh, And chemical evolution seeks to explain how we got that first living cell. I mean, Darwin didn't go there, really, not too much. Where did that first living cell come from? All of Darwinian theory builds on that, correct? So wouldn't it seem to follow that we should ask where'd that come from? Well, he did to an extent, but that wasn't his focus. Others in his day actually did. But quite obviously for Darwinism as a theory to even be plausible, and by the way, I'm not a Darwinist, okay? So don't just you know, kind of exhale, and it's okay. I'm not a, heris, a heretic. Um, it, uh, it needs, Darwinism needs one living cell to get started. Darwinism has to have something to get started with. Do you notice here in biology a similar problem in cosmology? We're here because of the Big Bang. Well, where'd the stuff come from that bung? Or what's the past tense of bang? bang? Well, never mind. Bing, bang, bung. Same problem here in biology, no? Yeah, there's a problem here. Chemical evolution asks, how do you get to the first living cell? Where'd that come from? How do you get from simple non-living uh, chemical soup to the first single-celled organism? So then the question becomes, is there any evidence of design at the level of that first cell? 
And if there is, can it be explained by some undirected mechanism, some naturalistic mechanism, or is it better explained by intelligent design? Okay, do, do you see how I got there by the reasoning? Um, Thomas Huxley, in 1869, said that, by the way, chemical uh, evolutionary theory after Darwin did not think. Once Darwinism sort of took hold, um, chemical evolutionary theory did not really think there was too much of a leap from the chemical soup to the first living organism. It wasn't a big leap at all. Why? Because as Thomas Huxley said, in 1869, the cell is a simple homogeneous globule of plasm. The cell is a simple homogeneous, homogeneous is how he wrote it then, but our term today is homogeneous, globule of plasm. What they would eventually go on to call protoplasm. Uh, it's, it's just sort of like jello. There's not much to it. It, it just, you know, it sort of wiggles and jiggles and it's, it's there. Um, that's the cell. And from just a, a few simple steps from the combination, the random combination of chemicals to, you know, just a couple steps will get you to this, this protoplasmic jello-like substance, which is the first living cell. Not a, the bridge to get from here to here doesn't have to be very long and it doesn't have to be very strong. That was the thinking after Darwinism took hold. But in the late 1800s, into the beginning of the 20th century, something happened. Scientists began to discover that proteins, which are really building blocks of life, living things, are long molecules made out of amino acids, and they have complicated metabolic reactions and interactions with other molecules around them. Long molecules that are rather complex made out of amino acids, and the metabolic reactions are fa fairly complex. We're a long way here from Jello and just the blob. You remember the movie The, Bl the Blob, The Green? Do you ever have... <laughs> what's the nearest you can come to this? Um, what's that stuff they throw at the wall and it just kind of sticks? And then it... Slime. Slime, yeah, okay. We're a long way from that now. Now we're observing proteins, which were agreed to be building blocks of life itself, and protein itself made out of amino acids that have complex reactions, metabolic reactions, with everything around them. I didn't know a whole lot at that point, but they're beginning to look through the microscope and see this is, this is more complex than we had originally thought. So a simple one or two step process to go from chemical life to, to biological life was not going to cut it. Well, along comes Alexander Oparin. You might have heard of him if you studied this in school. Uh, he came up with a theory of chemical evolution. Remember, we got biological evolution and chemical evolution. You're looking for the bridge between them now, biochemical evolution. How do you get from here to here, or here to here if you're looking literally? Um, and he developed an actual, uh, actually a more credible theory of how you could get from one to the other. Um, but he, he said it wasn't a couple little steps. It's a whole lot of complicated steps. And without getting overly complex here tonight in our dis uh, discussion, he said basically this, atmospheric gases zapped, there's a good technical term, zapped with lightning or ultraviolet radiation. Um, you, you do that, if you get the right soup and zap it with the right energy, you will eventually get the building blocks of amino acid 
that will link up and form proteins, which are the building blocks of life. Now, I have a couple diagrams uh, in here in your, uh, your outline. Oh, do we, are, are we out of outlines? I'm sorry, I'm just like plowing through here like everybody's... Um, Okay, my apologies. Well, you are intelligently designed and intelligent, so we didn't think you needed this. <laughs> yeah, we do have a couple more. Thanks. Um, in the history of science, if you ever study the history of science, you will see some of his theories. Um, basically, what, what everybody is observing is that protein comes together in, in sequences of... Now, this is sophisticated, isn't it? This is about as... Somebody said, keep it simple. Um, this is <laughs> like snap-on blocks. Uh, remember playing with these? They just come together, and they form <laughs> these strands. And we'll, we'll show a video in a moment of how that's done. It, uh, so here we go. We, we now have building blocks of life. And if you can get the right chemical soup zapped with the right energy at just the right time and just the right day, way, uh, way and just the right recipe, you will begin to get some of these and life can happen, okay? Now, that's what his theory was, and he was actually um, onto something, quite honestly. He wasn't, um, he wasn't totally out to lunch, uh, but he basically said that membranes would then uh, surround chemical reactions, and, and uh, the chemical reactions that are properly fed with just the right combinations of chemicals, they would survive, and you have almost a, sort of a, a chemical natural selection going on here, if you can follow that. Um, the right chemical reactions surrounded by the right membranes will contain these reactions and eventually produce these amino acids, and they will come together in the right way to form these proteins. Um, now, one test to assess, one, one aspect of his theory, now, follow the, the diagram, whether you're going up or down, it doesn't matter. You're going from chemical ev evolution to biochemical evolution, or the other diagram is another one that he came up with. It's, it's going the other direction. But the point is there's progress. You're going from the primordial soup, let's call it, the prebiotic state, to the right infusion of energy and the right chemical mix, and you've got then these little building blocks of life. Now, one test uh, to assess... Uh, one of these steps in his uh, particular theory um, in that long process of biochemical evolution was the Miller-Urey experiment. Now, you, you, I have a, a little explanation here. Just follow along with this. It's really fascinating to me. I mean, we're not studying so much the history of science, but it does play into what we're talking about here. A 1953 experiment that simulated the hypothetical conditions thought to be present on the early Earth and tested for the occurrence of chemical evolution. Uh, that's what this experiment is. Now, specifically, the experiment tested Oparin's and Haldane's hypothesis that conditions on the primitive Earth favored chemical reactions that synthesized organic compounds from inorganic precursors. And you might have seen the mechanism um, in science class. I don't know if you've ever looked at the mechanism that there's a picture. How did, did that print okay? Yeah, it looks okay. You can kind of follow. Here's what happened. Um, the, his prebiotic soup, let's say, was put in that container and then zapped with the energy. And then what happened was um, he collected uh, the, the result of that energy infusion into the soup. And a couple days later, he discovered a couple types of amino acids. Now, this experiment was uh, reproduced, I think, just a couple of years ago in 2008, and they found 22 
amino acids, which is kind of, so it looks like we're onto something here. It, you, as a theist, you might be getting a little nervous. There's something to this. The right energy infusion to the right prebiotic soup will, will result in these building blocks of life. And uh, as you can imagine, the experiment was heralded in the press and in the scientific community because Miller was able to simulate going from atmospheric gases to amino acids, his prebiotic soup. And that prebiotic soup is an imaginary substance that was thought to be the incubator of life. Now, there are two problems with his, his, uh, his theory. Number one, there's the gas problem. Anybody have a gas problem? <laughs> um, what do I mean by that? Well, the gases that Miller used in his experiment were not gases present in the universe at the time when the life supposedly started. Uh, the gases were more neutral, and with, again, without getting overly complex, um, they were slightly oxidizing, which means you could not get spontaneous formations of amino, amino acids from them. That was problem number one, the, pro the gas problem. Number two, the arrangement problem. In order for proteins to do their jobs, the amino acids have to line up in a particular way. I was putting these together in a very random way. But in order for protein to function correctly, they must be put together in a very specific way or they don't work because protein has, has to actually fold correctly to form um, what it forms for the specific function that it's going to do. And there are, there are numerous functions of protein. We'll get to that in a moment. But if they're not put together in the right way, they won't fold correctly and they won't form the mechanism needed to do the function within the cell. Okay? So that's the other problem. Miller had no clue how to get these amino acids arranged in a certain way to be functional. All he could do was say, hey, we've got some amino acid here in the tray. That's it. But he didn't have a clue or a mechanism to get them correctly arranged. So those are two major problems with this experiment. But can you see how the world will take something and run with it? Oh, we created life in a test tube. No, you didn't. You didn't even come close. But it was heralded back then in the 50s. And it was when, when the experiment was replicated again just a couple years ago, again, it got headlines. But what's really going on here? Well, you took some of this and you zapped it with this and you got some amino acids. But those amino acids did not come together. You couldn't get them together to create even one real protein. I think that's significant. So you've got the gas problem and the arrangement problem. So bottom line is this. Miller could randomly get from atmospheric gases to amino acid, but no clue how to get the amino acids to align correctly in order to form functional proteins. Harmke Kaminga. Now there's a name, huh? She said this, at the heart of the problem of the origin of life lies a fundamental question. What is it exactly that we're trying to explain the origin of? Amino acids? Is that life? No, it isn't. It's acid. We need to know what's in life so we know what it is we have to account for. Now, let's look a little bit more deeply the directors of the show. Proteins are essential to what goes on in life. Everybody knows it. Every biologist knows it. Seventh grade biology student knows it. Um, 
And, and these proteins, they're essentials. Think of, think of your toolbox. You have essential tools in your toolbox. What are they? There's a hammer. And you've got, you've got what else? A saw. And you've got, what else? A wrench. a wrench. Are they all the same shape? No. They're all different shapes. Why are they all different shapes? They're different shapes so they can, they can do the job for which they were designed to do. You know, you don't hammer in nails with a saw. I mean, I guess you can do it, but it doesn't work very well. I've hammered things with all, I mean, the bottom of a glass, that's dumb. I mean, I, <laughs> don't do that. Uh, same thing with proteins, though. Um, proteins are essential, and their shape is wrapped up in its function. Um, Proteins do hundreds of things with inside a single cell. Uh, just let me list a couple for you. They're structural parts for, for the motors within a cell. They, are, um, they catalyze certain reactions that are essential to the cell's life. They process information from the DNA strand. I mean, the list of functions of proteins goes on and on and on. Every job that, has, uh, uh, that, that protein depends upon, uh, every job that a protein does depends upon the shape that it takes. Uh, and one of the first things that scientists discovered about proteins is that they have a very complex three-dimensional shape. Um, let me, did that turn out okay? Yeah, I gave you on the left there, the, there, these are some various shapes that proteins take within a cell in order to perform the, a certain function. And um, they're all kind of creative. One looks like a flower, one looks like a well, I don't know. That looks a bit like an ovary, doesn't it? Um, the other, well, I mean, use your imagination here. You can play Rorschach test with, with protein shapes. Um, there are a whole, uh, there's a vast array of shapes that proteins will take. And one on the right is, is kind of interesting. Uh, what I want you to see here with this diagram is that certain proteins, uh, there's almost a hand-in-glove fit. In order for, what you see here is... Um, is a sugar, a chemical reaction involving sugar. And in order for that reaction to take place, for protein to catalyze that certain reaction, it has to be a certain shape so that the molecules fit. And if, if it's not shaped that way, the molecules won't fit and the reaction won't take place. So the, the shape of these things is absolutely critical. You can't, you've, in other words, if this will only bend so far, but this will bend further, and you need, you need your protein to, to be shaped that way, you've got to have this and not this. Okay, are you with me? Uh, not every combination will produce the same kind of shape, uh, such as the nature of proteins. Now, I'm trying to keep this as simple as I can. Um, but we have to be able to explain, though, the 3D structure and the specificity of it for each of its particular functions. Where did it come from? How does protein know to take this shape or that shape? How does that happen? Um, well, we have a, a pretty good idea now how that happens. Um, these things are sequence-specific. And the function of the whole does depend upon the arrangement of the parts. It's sort of like if you think of it, words. Um, think of words are made up of what? Letters. Will any sequence do? No. If, if you just go with any sequence at all, you get gibberish. Okay? Um, but you have words. That's the building block of what? Lots of words together become a sentence. Can you have words in any order that you want? No. You have to follow the rules of grammar and syntax. And if you get the words out of order, it uh, creates different meanings, doesn't it? 
and sentences become the building blocks of paragraphs. Paragraphs become the building blocks of chapters. Chapters become the building blocks of... It's kind of like this here at the molecular level. It's really fascinating the more you study this. Um, it's sequence-specific. Uh, Francis Crick, uh, the one who really crystallized our understanding of the double helix, along with Watson, uh, said this. He, he actually referred to an amino acid alphabet. An amino acid alphabet. In other words, uh, like letters in a word, they have to be in the right order. So these amino acids have to be in the right order to make a meaningful protein do what it, doing what it was designed to do. The word the in the sentence I just spoke has a function. It's an article. Um, the word article in that sentence is a noun. It has a function. Same thing with all of these amino acids that form the proteins. Now, you'll see there another diagram. Uh, the amino acid sequence of a protein determines the higher levels of structure of, of the molecule. And he notes a single change in the primary structure, the amino acid sequence, can have a profound biological effect on the overall structure and the function of the protein. Now, all that to say this, there are basically three features of proteins. Number one, the shapes. Uh, shapes perform certain functions and folded chains form the shape. And precise amino acid sequencing determines, determines the folding and the function. So what we're saying is like back to our analogy, the letters form the words, the words form the sentences, the sentences form the paragraph, the paragraph forms the chapter, the chapter forms the book. And what we're saying here is that precise amino acid sequencing determines folding and function. If it's got one sequence, it's going to fold one way. If it's got another sequence, it's going to fold a totally different way and perform a totally different function. So, when it comes to explaining then the origin of life, as we framed it here, from... from uh, Prebiotic to biotic, the question, what is the fundamental question? The fundamental question is, what's the thing that re that's responsible for the protein function? The sequence. That's it. Everything hinges on the sequence of these acids. Um, and then that begs the question, well, where'd that come from? Where'd the sequence come from? Are, are you with me? How did, you, how did, the, how did the author know to just put the A before the T in that word, that. How did he know that? Well, let's keep going. How do we know that? Well, there's another molecule in the cell called DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. And the, the DNA encodes instructions. It is, as many scientists and biologists have called it, a digital code along the spine of the DNA that actually directs the cell how to arrange the, the amino acids, okay? So there's a molecule in the cell called deoxyribonucleic acid. You've heard of DNA if you've watched CSI, right? You know what the DNA evidence proved it. <laughs> I'm convinced, you know, we've become so used to this. We don't stand in awe of what it actually is. We want to unfold that a little bit tonight. Um, but there's a digital code along the spine of the DNA molecule that actually directs the cell how to arrange the amino acids. Now, there's another picture here. You've seen the double helix before. And you see what looks like the ladder rungs in between the helix. 
um, the, the DNA chemical uh, constituent parts. You've got a sugar and a phosphate backbone. That's the twirling part. And then inside are the chemicals called bases. And uh, did, that, did that copy okay? All right, very good. And they're different colors in mine. But uh, now Crick's, uh, Crick, one of the discoverers, a co-discoverer of this, had a hypothesis. He said that the arrangement of the bases along the inside of the molecule function just like alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters like zeros and ones in computer code. And that arrangement, that sequencing in between uh, the sugar phosphate backbone, that is what directs the synthesis of proteins within the cell. That's where the sequence comes from, and the sequence determines uh, how the thing's going to fold, how it folds determines its function, okay? So you go back as far as you can, right there it is. You're looking right there. This sequencing is what is determinative of everything else inside the cell. Everything else, else that goes on inside is dependent upon that. Now, um, that just pushes the question back a level, and it begs the question, where did this directing information come from? How did it come to me? Who or what put it there? Put that on hold. We'll come back to it. But for now, get a grasp of what we're saying. Um, have you ever seen an automated assembly line, you know, where, where they put cars together? You've got machines building machines. Now, that's just, I, you know, part of me is still back with the cavemen. I, I say that in quotes. The Geico people. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You gotta be kidding me. A machine can build a machine? Yes, but how? It's got machine language. It's got code driving it, right? Well, where'd the code come from? That is, somebody put it there. It didn't just happen. I mean, the forces of nature didn't come together and suddenly produce, you know, the, the mercury mechanism that produces cars. Obviously. You've got digital code here. That's what this looks like. And as Meyer said in that clip I showed, it's even more sophisticated than any machine language we have that drives an assembly line in Michigan. Far more complex. The information in DNA directs the synthesis and construction of proteins. What do we mean by that? I want you to take a look. This other video clip, actually, it kind of goes by fast, but so... so kind of lock in, this is really fascinating. Um, you're going to see this, and now you're, in, you're within a cell now, this is all taking place within a cell. So take a look. Francis Crick first proposed that chemicals called bases along the spine of the DNA molecule function as alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters in a machine code. This animation shows how this digital information directs protein synthesis. First, a large protein complex separates the tightly wound strands of the DNA to prepare it to be copied. 
During this process of transcription, a protein complex called a polymerase produces a single-stranded copy of the original instructions. Here we see this copy, a messenger RNA molecule, being constructed inside the polymerase as individual bases are positioned and added to the growing strand. Now we see the polymerase in action from the outside as it spits out the messenger RNA transcript. Next, this RNA transcript approaches and passes through a molecular machine called the nuclear pore complex, an information recognition device that controls the flow of information in and out of the cell's nucleus. Now we see the genetic assembly instructions on the messenger RNA approaching and arriving at a two-part chemical factory called a ribosome, the site of protein synthesis. As the messenger RNA transcript passes through the ribosome, the process of translation begins. During translation, a mechanical assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids in accord with the instructions on the transcript. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell by molecules called transfer RNAs, which link specific sequences of bases to corresponding amino acids. The sequential arrangement of the amino acids determines the type of protein constructed. When the construction of the chain is complete, it is transported to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape required to perform its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is released into the outer cytoplasm to do its job in the cell. Inside the cell is a city. It's a little city that functions seemingly on purpose. We are a long way from your seventh grade biology class where the prof or the teacher said, draw a cell, and you drew a circle. And the big fat thing in the middle, that circle, that was the nucleus. And then you had some mitochondria and vacuoles. And anybody, I see Michelle laughing. Anybody else remember what I'm talking about? And, and you see, I mean, it's this little, it's jello, it's globule, you know, it's, it's jello with fruit. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit more than that. It's a functioning city. I mean, this is fascinating. Um, the cell is a city. And we have, what you just saw there was one aspect of a functioning cell, one aspect of a functioning cell. And you've got trillions of cells in your body right now doing that. Trillions. Now we're at national debt level. So, you know, people tell me I, I can't conceive of a tr $3 trillion. Okay, we're now in incomprehensible numbers. It'll get bigger. Hang on. Um, 
Each of these processes takes place, you know, as we're, we're sitting here speaking, it, all of them are taking place. You've got sequencing and transcribing and transporting and folding and shaping. Now, my question was always, because I've seen these animations before, they've been around some, and my question was, well, how, it looks like things are just flying into place. How does that happen? Actually, what's not being shown there are the, the proteins that have that function to take things from one place to another. Those are kind of left out of the an animation, okay? So things aren't just flying around like in Bewitched, okay? There's, <laughs> things are moving on purpose, and they get from where they are to where they need to be in the replication sequence and the transcribing and all that's going on there. Um, and all of that, that direction, that motion, it, it's directed by the information in the DNA. It's amazing. Um, information is directing the machinery of the cell so that it's func it functions in the right way, just like the machines building machines in Detroit, those assembly, those automated assembly lines making cars, it's information driving their actions, the code that was put in. That's the best analogy I can do here. Um, so what does all that mean? What does all that mean? Um, what kind of information are we talking about here? I could walk throughout the sanctuary here with a bag of Scrabble tiles and, and have, you know, have somebody pick out or eight people pick out, each pick out one tile, and we would try to throw them to, and, and see if they create a word. Now, I trust with last week's demonstration that <laughs> with the combination lock, we don't have to you know, do that again. But chances are very, very, very slim that you could get letters that actually form a word in the English language. Um, there was a mathematician by the name of Shannon, and he developed uh, actually a theory of information. And basically he said this, information and probability are inversely related. Um, information is about, he said, the, re the reduction of uncertainty. Here's what I mean by that. Let me give you a couple examples. Examples kind of make the point better than the verbal description. If I tell you in October of 2010, that's where we are now, that it's going to rain in Seattle in November, okay? It's going to rain in Seattle in November. That doesn't really tell you a lot, does it? It's going to rain in November in Seattle because that's what it does in Seattle. It's almost as bad as England. You know, it's raining all the time. I haven't really told you much. It's not specific information. Uncertainty has not been reduced with that type of information. But if I tell you, in October of 1950, you should pretend it's October of 1950, and I tell you that on May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens is going to erupt, well, that's pretty specific information. And as it turns out, that's exactly what happened. Mount St. Helens did erupt. Uh, on that particular date. That is informative. That is specific information. And, and uncertainty there is reduced. If I can tell you in 1950 that that's going to happen in 1980, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, Shannon linked this, mathematic, uh, uh, this phenomenon mathematically to the idea of complexity or, or probability or improbability. Now, here's, if you remember back to last week, um, let, me, let me share with you a very simple illustration of what I mean by complexity versus co uh, specified complexity. We talked about this last week. Uh, you see a line of text there. It's just letters that, what does it spell? I don't know what it spells. It doesn't spell anything. Um, that's complexity. For each slot, wherever you see a letter, what are the chances that it would be that letter? One in 26, because there are 26 possibilities, 26 letters in our alphabet. Okay, So if you span that out then, the probability of that line of text being what it is, is one 
divided by 26 times each slot that you have there. Are you with me? I know you hate math. I can't even balance my checkbook. But this is fun. Just hang in there. Um, now, the next line. What do you see? Anything meaningful? Time and tide wait for no man. You can kind of, even without spaces, you can pick that up, right? There is... Now, the, the complexity of that line is mathematically the same. Because every slot has a 1 in 26 possibility of being that particular letter. But what's different about this line? It corresponds to a pattern. It's not just complex or improbable. It's specified complexity. It corresponds to a pattern. It has a meaningful sequence. It corresponds um, to, to a function. It, it follows the rules of grammar and spelling in the English language. You see the difference between the two. The information in DNA, here's what I, all that to say this. The information in DNA is not just complex. It is specified and complex. It's not like that first line. It's like the second line. Okay? It's specified and complex. Um, it tells the cell how to arrange amino acids to build a protein. Back to Francis Crick. By information here, I mean the specification of the amino acid sequence in the protein. Information here means the precise determination of sequence, either of the bases in the nucleic acid or of amino acid residues in the protein. In other words, these bases, the chemicals inside the twisted part, the phosphates and the sugars, that is, that is complex and specified. That's what he's saying here. See his word specification? He chose that word very carefully. It's not just complex. It's not just improbable. It's a specified improbability. The information in biology is not just Shannon's information. It's specified information. So what is the fundamental mystery of life? It's the origin of information. It's the origin of information. Specified information, functional information, not merely an improbable arrangement of characters. It is improbable, but a specified improbability. Bernd Olaf Poopers, biochemist, said this, the problem of the origin of life is clearly, basically equivalent to the problem of the origin of biological information. Isn't that fascinating? And you thought Darwinism was... Game, set, match. No, I beg to differ. Darwinism is not game, set, match. Because remember, the whole tree of Darwinism depends upon one living cell. Where'd that come from? Well, not only do we have the appearance of design, we have, I would call it exquisite design. Other, other chemists and philosophers of science and, and biochemists have, call, have used that word exquisite. What's the word exquisite mean? Oh, your china is exquisite. What do you mean? You don't have china. Okay. Um, your, <laughs> your painting is exquisite. You don't have paintings. What, what does exquisite mean? Incredible. It, it's just, Wow. This didn't just happen. 
there's design, intentionality, purpose, significance, meaning, specified complexity. You look at the rim of your china. There's a design to it. It's not just the formation of, of chemicals. It's a painter did that. That's what he's saying here. Bill Gates, um, you got to throw him in here. We're talking about computers. <laughs> Human DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any we've ever created. Isn't it significant for somebody like him to say that? I mean, this guy was born a geek. He's made his millions, by, and he knows it. I mean, is it possible that we have become too accustomed? We watch these, these cop shows, you know, DNA evidence says. Wait, hey, when, when you hear that phrase, somebody got convicted in a court of law because of DNA evidence, your mouth ought to drop open. And, and why is that so, why is that, why is DNA evidence such a slam dunk? Precisely because of what we're talking about here. It's, com, it's specified complexity. That's why you can convict with this stuff. Even Richard Dawkins, our favorite atheist, he said this, the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. Apart from differences in jargon, the pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. That's, that's pretty interesting. Even the atheist has to admit there's a striking appearance of design here. My question is this, has this appearance of design been explained away by any observed and confirmed undirected process? The answer is no. The answer is no. So why then is it off limits for the theist to posit what is observed and confirmed in other areas of life that the only source for specified functional information is an intelligent source? When you read the sentence, time and tide, wait for no man, you know some mind was behind that. But when you see the same phenomenon at the level, at the molecular, the, the, I mean, the micro-molecular level, oh, all of a sudden we, we say no, no intelligence allowed. What's with that? Well, let's ask, what's with that? What are the odds of that happening by chance? You knew this was where it's going. <laughs> um, all of life is made up of proteins. We've seen that. So what are the odds that one lonely little protein could come into existence by chance without any help or direction or intentionality from an outside intelligence? What are the chances of that? Or to put it more scientifically, is it possible for life to have begun by mere chance? Where did the specified information in DNA come from? How did life first begin? Well, there are three hypotheses, three naturalistic hypotheses that have been set forth. Chance, natural selection, and self-organization. Those are three naturalistic hypotheses that have been postulated by naturalistic scientists to explain the origin of life and how these uh, amino acids come together in the sequence that they do. Let's look at each one. Remember, when you look at the premises of an argument and determine whether they're plausible or not, whether they're more plausible than their negation. Remember, okay, that's a couple weeks ago, but that's how you do this. These prim Let's look at them. The chance variation. By the way, I would say that there's, there's serious mathematical and logical difficulties in explaining the origin of life using any of these three theories. 
And, and that leads me to, to the inescapable conclusion that undirected processes do not create the information needed to produce life. So let's take one, each of these one by one. Number one, the chance variation theory. Again, we're back to the Scrabble. The, I, I bring around a bag of, or a box lid of Scrabble tiles, and we pull out eight letters, and, and, and we're trying to form a word. What is the probability, um, if you've got eight slots, what is the probability of that spelling out a word? Each slot, the probability is one in whatever the calculation is. Really, what you've got here, eight slots, 26 possibilities per slot. That's 26 to the, to the eighth power. Okay, 26 possibilities in each slot times eight. You've got 26 multiplied by itself eight times. That's your probability of any, any sequence of letters that you could possibly get with that kind of draw. Okay? Now, in any, any linguistic system, English being just one example, the functional possibilities are very small out of the total possibilities. I already gave you the example of the gibberish line versus time and tide wait for no man. I mean, you can sit there at, how long would it take you to sit at a keyboard and just do this, blindfolded, until you get a meaningful sentence? If we rearrange the, and you don't know what you're typing. How long would that take? Until we could actually isolate a meaningful sentence. You see the probability here. Um, or back to the combination lock illustration that we did last week. And if you weren't here, basically what I did was I, I held up a combination lock. It had 40 numbers on it. And there are three numbers that you have to get just right, right, left, right, to open the lock. And I just handed it out and said, who was first? I think Diane, Diane, Diane Bourne. We gave it to Diane. And, okay, try it. You think she'll be able to do it? Nobody thinks she can do it because she doesn't know the combination. Well, you, maybe she can open it by chance. And she spins it and, you know. She, what is the probability of her opening it the first try? Well, three numbers, three slots that she's got to get right, 40 possibilities in each. So 1 out of 40 times 1 out of 40 times 1 out of 40. That's the probability that she will get it on the first try. She didn't get it on the first try. So then we gave it to somebody else. I forget who it was. And then Josh over there, he just had to get in on the game too. He thought he could, well, he thinks he can do everything. So we gave him the lock, and lo and behold, what happened? He opened it. And we're all like, whoa, how did he do that? Well, he knew the combination. The game was rigged. He had the combination. Pastor Jason gave it to him. There was, in other words, there was an intelligence behind what he was doing. Fancy that. <laughs> there was an intelligence behind how he spun the combination lock. Now, what if the combination had 10 numbers to unlock instead of 3? 1 in 40 times 1 in 40 times 1 in 40 times 1 over 41. Okay, all the way out to 10 times. And what happens here is every time you add a number, you're not, um, the, the number of possibilities grows exponentially, not additively, but exponentially. You know, you remember your logarithms from, okay, this is an exponential increase, not just addition. Now, back to proteins for a moment. There are 20 possible amino acids that could be part of a growing protein. That means that there's a 1 in 20 chance at each site on a chain, Okay. So, 10 sites. Let's, let's think of a chain, 10 sites. 20 possibilities, uh, 20, 20 amino acid possibilities uh, at each site. Uh, that means that you've got uh, the probability of getting that arrangement by chance is 1 in 20 to the 10th power. 
or if you convert that to the base 10 says, basically what we're saying is it's one in 10 trillion times. Your probability of that to get the right amino acid by chance on a chain 10 sites long is one in 10 trillion. Okay, now we're way beyond our deficit. And wait, 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 wait. Okay, so 10 sites. Now, if I told you that a short protein length had 100 to 150 sites, Okay, I just gave you 10. But if, if you take a, a small protein would be between 100 and 150 sites. The average protein site is 300 to 400 sites long. So let's start with the small. You take a, a protein of 150 sites, the odds of getting the necessary combination by chance is 150 sites with 20 amino acids, that's 20 raised to the 150th power or you convert that to base 10, you've got 1 in 10 to the 195th power. That's your possibility. It's your possibility of getting it by chance. 1 in 10 to the 195th power. Can you even conceive of such a number? Um, or, or, uh, uh, that's over... Uh, that is, you know how astronomical that is for comparison's sake? There are only 10 to the 80th power elementary particles in the whole universe, protons, neutrons, electrons, all the elementary, 10 to the 80, that's all you got. If you're looking at a probability of chance here, you get 1 in 10 raised to the 195th power. That's just not plausible, folks. It's not plausible. That's a gazillion times more than the number of particles in the universe. Um, now, Doug Axe, molecular biologist, said this. Even if you subtract out the non-functional amino acids, because, again, not every combination, not every combination will give you a functional amino acids. But if you take out the combinations that don't fold properly to perform a certain function, he said this, you're still left with a probability of 1 in 10 to the 74th power. In other words, for, for it to come together by chance, You've got one chance in 10 to the, uh, to the 74th power. That's, that's your probability that this could happen by chance. Now, that's one problem to overcome. Another problem to overcome is this. Peptide bonds are required between amino acids to form protein chains. Now, these things don't just come together randomly. You need a certain type of bond for this to happen. It's something called a peptide bond. And the, the chance of getting a peptide bond as opposed to a non-peptide bond for these things to come together is about 50-50, one out of two chances, okay? So you've now just introduced another factor here, um, a probability of in a chain with 150 sites, that's 1 in 2 to the 150 power, or to convert to base 10 again, 1 in 10 to the 45th power. So you've got that now as a factor to multiply by the first big number we gave you. But we're still not done. There's another problem to overcome. Amino acids come in two types. A left-handed optical isomer, we won't bother ourselves with, that, with what that means, but there's a left-handed and a right-handed optical isomer. And the left-handed optical isomer is the only kind that can build a protein. Um, <laughs> left-handed universe, folks. <laughs> um, if you get even one right-handed into a chain, it's not going to fold right. And it's not going to do its function. And the probability of getting a left-handed optical isomer is 1 in 2. Again, so you've got in a chain of uh, 150 sites, it's 1 over 2 to the 150th power. 
or to convert to base 10, 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Now, you take those three incredibly huge numbers that I just gave you, and you multiply all three together. That's the possibility that one strand can come together by chance. What is that number? Anybody remember your algebra? How do you do that? You just add the exponents, right? Do you remember that? <laughs> Some of you have no idea what it is. That's okay. Just add the exponents. In other words, here it is. 1 in 10 to the 164th power. That's the possibility that this could happen by chance. Is anyone thinking that maybe the chance hypothesis is not even a remote possibility? Pun intended. <laughs> Think a moment for, let's call him Waco Willie playing poker. And getting a royal flush every single time. You want to play poker with a guy like that? Well, you, you don't want to play poker anyway. But they tell me, I learned last week, that a royal flush is the best hand you can get in poker. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah they, okay, so that's correct. I don't know what you win when you get that. I don't know what the score is. But that's the top. Now, getting dealt that every single time? What are you going to... After about the third or fourth time, what are you thinking? The game's rigged. The game, somebody is up to something. That's just after a couple poker hands. And, and that, that is infinitesimally smaller than we're talking about here. Now, let me add one other factor here to just blow it even, even further out of the realm of plausibility. We're talking here about a single protein. A single protein. How many proteins does it take to make a single cell? About 250 to 400 proteins to produce a minimally complex organism. So take that number now and multiply it by 400. I, I would have to dispense with that theory. Chance is a legitimate... Chance does not have explanatory power. It just doesn't. The numbers are out, outside the realm of reality. Okay, second hypothesis, prebiotic natural selection. Basically here what's being said is that just like in biology proper, natural selection will weed out certain organisms because of the, the random mutations and natural selection. You've got something like that happening chemically in the prebiotic soup. Well, problem. The prebiotic soup is not yet alive. Natural selection depends upon differential reproduction. In other words, the organism that received the new trait in the new generation has a survival advantage over the organism in the previous generation that didn't have that trait. Okay? Um, so natural selection presupposes organisms that can copy themselves. And that copying depends upon information-rich DNA and functional proteins, but that's exactly what you're trying to explain the origin of. Now, if I didn't lose you in all those numbers, what we're saying here is, in logic, this is called begging the question. You know what begging the question is? I fell in a hole and I need to get out. Okay, I'll just go home and get a ladder, bring it back, and get out of the hole. What's the problem with that little illustration? How did I get out of the hole to go get the ladder? That's in logic called begging the question. Do you see the problem? And that's what's going on here in this hypothesis. Um, 
You can't explain information unless you already have information. Christian de Duve said this, theories of prebiotic natural selection, quote, need information, which implies they have to presuppose what, it, what is to be explained in the first place. I have to reject this theory too. One, one to go. One to go. Self-organization. These things organize themselves they, because they just do. Self-organization. Uh, Dean Kennan first popularized the theory um, in a book called uh, Biochemical Predestination. Uh, and he said that, that some of these chemicals, the forces of attraction actually bring the parts of the various protein strands together. And, and you can see, you know, that's, that's not too terribly far out because some chemicals do are more naturally attracted to others. Um, give me a couple examples. Which chemicals go together nicely? Dihydrogen monoxide, also known as? It sounds sinister, but it's just water, right? Um, sodium chloride, also known as? Salt. I mean, they go together nicely. And, you know, you've got salt and water evaporate. You've got these nice crystals. And they, I mean, okay. So what this theory, what uh, Kenyon was actually saying is something like that was happening back then. Certain things, it wasn't all as random as it seems because certain chemicals attract other chemicals. Now, that's, that's not totally outlandish, um, except for this. He eventually abandoned his own theory. He abandoned his own theory. Uh, unfortunately, not all of his followers did. Um, but he said that, here's how he put it. He said, I shouldn't be looking for the origin of protein, but the origin of information in DNA. He said, I shouldn't be looking for the origin of proteins in a cell. I should be looking for the origin of the information in DNA. Um, he came to realize that you couldn't have forces of self-organization explain the arrangement of the characters that make up the digital code. Let me give you another illustration. My sister-in-law, Joan Mason, lives in Delaware. We go down there once in a while and see her and her husband and her family and our, our kids' cousins. They have on the side of their refrigerator, maybe you have this too, on the side of the refrigerator, they, they've got a whole bunch of words, little magnets, and you can arrange those magnets any way you want. And they've got funny ways. And you can, there's nouns, verbs, you know, articles. And, and you can arrange those things to make sentences. And sometimes you can make really funny sentences or very simple sentences. You know, the cat uh, peed on the carpet or whatever. I mean, you've got, you can make very funny stuff. Um, and they can be long and sophisticated. It's got punctuation and all that. Um, Basically, what Kenyon is saying is this. If you look at the double helix, he's saying that just, that just holds the information. It just holds the information between it. The bases, the chemical bases are inside. And, and the attraction can't explain how they got together. Uh, back to my, um, look at it this way. Uh, Michael Palanyi, a chemist, said this. Um, the force of attraction explains the attachment, but not the sequence. The force of attraction explains the attachment, how it got there, but not the sequence. Um, Polanyi said this. He was a friend of Einstein. He said this. As the arrangement of a printed page is extraneous to the chemistry of the printed page, so is the base sequence in a DNA molecule extraneous to the chemical forces at work in the DNA molecule. 
In other words, when I take those magnets off Joan's refrigerator and I, I stick them on, the, the magnet explains the attachment, but not the sequence in relationship to the other words on the refrigerator. Do you follow me? That's what he's saying. That, that the magnet and the refrigerator, it, the, the attachment can be explained chemically, but not the sequence. You see the difference? I mean, if I just throw the magnet, the refrigerator will catch it because of the magnetic pull. But why did it go there as opposed to there? Because I, as an intelligent human being, put it there instead of there. Are you with me? Okay. Undirected mechanisms. The point, the bottom line, undirected mechanisms don't get the job done. Henry Quassler said this, the creation of new information is habitually associated with conscious activity. Yes, I put the verb peed here instead of there because it was funnier there than over there. Stephen Meyer, guy we've been quoting tonight, there's no naturalistic explanation for the origin of the information that you need to build the first life. Maybe we're looking at something that appears designed because it really is designed. It's as simple as that. As you know, everyone has presuppositions. Stephen Meyer said, exquisite technology is working right now in the mitochondria of your cells. Exquisite, there's that word again. Which worldview best explains this exquisite technology? We can go all through them. Naturalism, uh, pantheism, deism, theism. And you can run, just like we've been doing this whole series, you can, does, does this worldview have explanatory, for, explanatory power for this phenomenon? And you can go right through it. But a fundamental rule of the scientists is that, follow this, because this is, this, is where the whole, this is where the whole battle is fought. This is why Philip Johnson, a couple of decades ago, said that Darwinian evolution is taught in the public schools has nothing to do with science, everything to do with philosophy and worldview. It's right here. A fundamental rule of the modern scientists is that no naturalistic or supernatural concepts can be employed to explain the origin of life. Therefore, the debate regarding the origin of life is not just about the evidence itself, but also about the presuppositions that keep the scientists from considering all possible explanations. But... I put the question to you, when we find such vast, complex, specified, and functional information in a DNA molecule encoded in digital form, don't you think that a most reasonable conclusion is that the information had an intelligent source? Is that not reasonable? Given the, prob the astronomical probability we've talked about, you want to tell me I'm being unreasonable to posit intelligence behind this design we see? I don't accept that, and you don't have to accept it either. I'm, I'm starting to preach here because this is called education today. It's not about evidence. It's about worldview. I can't end up with a God hypothesis because I don't want God in the picture. As we saw at the cosmological telescope level last week, so it is true at the terrestrial level, the microscopic level, the teleological argument is valid and its premises are solid more so than their negations. 
So I would submit to you the following conclusion. The question of design is a critical worldview-shaping paradox. If biology points us to the appearance of design, then what are we to make of it? Darwinism, uh, or Darwinian evolutionists believe that the scientific explanation for the appearance of design is natural selection or undirected causes. Simply put, they believe the design we observe is only an illusion. However, significant evidence for intelligent design is found in the cosmological fine-tuning of the universe and in now, as that was last week, this week, in the inner workings of the cell and its complex makeup of DNA. It's becoming more and more apparent, at least to me, that theism provides the best explanation for the phenomena of exquisite design and information in the cells of all living things. And when one takes all the evidence into account from the cosmological fine-tuning of the universe and the mathematical genius of the digital code in biology, there is a compelling case to be made for the existence of God. In fact, it may be the only intelligent theory left standing, the best plausible explanation for the origin of the universe and for life itself. So as we saw last week, the cosmological argument makes a compelling case that there's a transcendent cause of the universe and the teleo uh, teleological argument makes a compelling case that there's an intelligent cause of the universe. Transcendent plus intelligent. You know, as we keep making our way through these arguments, and next up is the moral argument. Pastor Jason's going to spend some time presenting the moral argument. We're going to get transcendent, intelligent, and then moral or holy. It's starting to add up. But I put it to you this way, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 31, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Isaiah 45, 18. This is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. You can zap a few molecules and get an amino acid. Big whoopee snot. Try putting them together and make something. My paraphrase of Isaiah. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And finally, Hebrews 1.3. Well, not finally. But the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Sustaining all things. Strands of amino acids? Yes, all things. Magna opera domini exquisita. There's our word exquisite. The first words in Latin of Psalm 110. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Psalm 110. The teleological argument. The fine-tuning of the universe suggests a fine-tuner. Okay. Um, questions, comments? I forgot my phone again. I... I'm so sorry. I let, I, I just, let, <laughs> text Jason. <laughs> um, questions, comments, irritations? Yes, Yvonne? Uh, let me just ask a question about the 
Yeah. Anybody want to take a stab at that? Yeah, anybody remember the, uh, what are the phases of cell reproduction? Uh, prophase, metaphase, proto-metaphase, anaphase, telophase. Remember the, uh, am I close? This, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, something like that. Um, with the, the reduction of a cell before it actually becomes, uh, b before, before it multiplies. And, and the combination, what, where did, where did um, Eve's DNA come from? That's the question. Um, you have, Jason, you want to, where's Jason? You want to take a stab at it? Have you ever thought through that? Well, I think once you get to Adam's DNA, who cares about Eve? <laughs> I mean, because if they take the first step of no DNA to Adam's DNA, after that, it's, you know, um, not a big deal. Yeah. But, but again, you know, if, if we truly take it literally to say, yes, it's like a natural this from Adam to make Eve, well, there's a lot more than DNA to make yeah, there, there's more more to her than a rib. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, the Hebrew word there is side. I don't know if, however that's actually translated. There's a semantic range for the word, what comes into English as rib there. that It might be broader than just rib, but some aspect or dimension to her. It may actually be more than just what we would understand to be a rib. That issue aside, uh, where was it? There was a, a couple years ago, um, they actually named a certain primate that they found they called her Eve because of mitochondrial evidence of uh, a single source of... Do anybody remember this story? You don't read science news? I said, I'm just fascinated by it. Uh, not just the goofy... Not all science news is bad. Um, and here is one where they actually... Uh, they located her somewhere in the cradle of civilization, the Fertile Crescent, and, and they... Now they're off by a factor of, I'd say, about 100,000, but they actually pinpointed her mitochondrial DNA to... Um, and they said, we, we think we have found... It's very interesting. I would be interested in Francis Collins' answer to that question. The Genome Project, you know, um, if, you've, if you've heard of that. that I, would, I wouldn't doubt that he explores that. Um, I haven't read him yet. He's like on my... Do you have a bathroom pile of books? I've got, you know, it's not literally in my bathroom. It's, you know, I've got like a ton of these books I want to read. And, and his is one of them, the, the, uh, the Genome Project. He's a believer, too. Um, uh, that issue is, when I was, a, I can say this because I went to West Virginia University. I, I went to West Virginia University. They had a joke. We had a joke that we told there, why is there no CSI in West Virginia? It's because everybody's DNA is the same. <laughs> so, um, that's not an answer to your question, but it's a nice evasive maneuver, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're, they're not. You can actually, if you're, there's a range of probability when a DNA is examined that it's, if the percentage isn't high enough, but it's high, it's like, this is a relative here. His son was the killer, not the father. And, and it's for precisely the reason that you're saying. Uh, but when you hear about DNA evidence, folks, there's a, there's a lot underneath it. Uh, it's become commonplace to us. Don't let it become commonplace. There's nothing common about it. Okay, uh, Jan, you wanted to jump in here? Yeah. Think about that for a moment. Maybe this is new for some of you. The whole concept of information. Where did that come from? It came from an intelligent mind. Okay, any other quick comments, questions? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, the first one we're going to deal with in, under evidential apologetics, uh, the triple conjecture of, of planets, one theory of the star of Bethlehem, and all that goes with that. That would be evidentialist apologetics. The second one, I'm not sure if you're here, but we did reference Michael Behe earlier in the presentation, and, and what a major contribution he has made to the intelligent design movement. It's just, you know, 90 minutes, how do you cover all of it? We landed the plane here in DNA, but if you, anything by Michael Behe is worth reading. Okay, he's a, he's a Catholic Christian, a believer, uh, and believes, obviously, in intelligent design. So, good recommendation. Yes, Joe? I think an interesting thing that I've Last one, and then we'll go. Okay, you got the last word. Yeah, the whole, uh, the whole issue of the presupposition under Darwinism. Um, of all people, Philip E. Johnson, who's a lawyer from Berkeley, began writing about this subject, still writing. Um, he's got many books now, but it, he first started by, by exposing the naturalistic worldview underneath Darwinism. It's not an issue of evidence, as I said before. Um, so everybody's got at least one presupposition. Everybody. And that includes your prof that's got an alphabet soup of letters after his name. What is that presupposition? That'll give you, that'll give you a little insight as to... Now, I'm not saying all, all evolutionists are wicked. I'm just saying understand the presupposition. You know, they say in politics, follow the money. In philosophy and in science, follow the presupposition. Follow the worldview. Okay? That's probably enough for one night. <laughs> uh, the moral argument next... Next week, Jason and I, Pastor Jason and I, both think it's the most powerful argument of the classical arguments. One of the reasons C.S. Lewis hints at it, he says, I think you learn a lot more about us as humans. You learn more about an architect by watching him behave than you do by what he built. You learn more about an architect by watching him behave than what he built. And I think there's something to that. And I think maybe that's why the moral argument is the strongest. So we'll pick that up next week. And uh, God bless you. Thanks for being here.